narcissists have an uncanny ability to turn the simplest discussion into a meaningless argument. In this episode, Tara and I take a closer look at the underlying dynamics that are often at play, why we become either overly compliant or we turn into an unrecognizable rager. And the self-help tip is learning to affirm ourselves so that we can become more emotionally detached and in control of ourselves. By the way, we have a newsletter we'd love to share with you. Please sign up for it at breakingfreewithcarrieandtara.substat.com. We'll be sure to put the link in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse. I'm Dr. Carrie Kerr-McAvoy, a mental health specialist with over 20 years of counseling experience. And I'm Tara Blair Ball, a certified relationship coach. This is a listener-supported podcast. Please consider becoming a supporter of the show for less than a cup of coffee. I have a suspicion that this is something you're going to really identify with. It's just a difficulty of having a constructive discussion with a narcissist, that they seem to always need to win every argument. Mm-hmm. I was watching TikTok yesterday, and there is a content creator that I follow. His name is The Nameless Narcissist. He's very narcissistic. He owns his narcissism. This is what I enjoy about his content. He gives a perspective of himself, of what's going on in his head. And he explained what happens in a relationship about what attracts him to somebody and then how it twists. He's attracted to a person's kindness, to the admirable things about who they are as a person, their goodness. He finds it very admirable and he wants more of that. So he even described it as sort of like a glow and he wants to be close to it. But then he starts to feel ashamed of himself because he knows he's not like that, that he's done really bad things in the past. And so their goodness makes him feel really bad and really dark. And then he begins to twist it and sort of see it from a contemptuous standpoint of that they're idiotic for that, that they are naive and that it's actually that he's smarter because he sees the world more realistic. And as I was listening to him, I was thinking about how that makes sense, what happens in arguments that often, well, I know for myself, I'll seemingly approach it straightforwardly. I'll think that this is a discussion about picking the kids up or what are we going to do for dinner or something simple. And next thing I know, it becomes personal. Like Mm. I've attacked this person that I'm somehow slighting them or making myself think that I look better than they are. It's weird. They twist it in these odd ways. And next thing I know, I'm in a position of justifying and defending. I feel completely off track. I'm lost. So it it just gets exhausting. and, And I found when I was in that relationship that I just started not bringing topics up that it was just easier to forego it all together. Absolutely. I can remember so many instances where I would think or feel like I was bringing up something small or inconsequential or like not a big deal. Like, hey, you didn't kiss me when you got home. Is everything okay? And then it becoming this really huge, intense issue that somehow had to do with something I had said weeks or months prior. And suddenly I'm apologizing for something I didn't even know I'd done wrong and couldn't even really grasp what exactly I had done wrong. It always felt like just that unpredictability that, Mm -hmm. you know, I had no idea what was going to happen, what thing was going to cause an uproar. And it really caused me to be hyper vigilant and spend a lot of time and energy thinking about, okay, how am I going to say this? How am I going to bring it up? 
What's the nicest way? What time of day should I do it? Does he seem in his good mood? I'm watching him. I'm looking at him trying to assess like, is now a good time? Is, is he busy? Is he, is he needing to relax? You know, how do I need to start it? I need to use I statements. All of this time and energy and focus and assessing and evaluating, like, is it is now okay? Is it not? And it was it was just so exhausting. And there was no pattern to it. I could never predict when something was going to be small or large. And I always found myself apologizing. Every single uproar, and you may have had this too, I just found myself like apologizing because me owning something that I may not even realize I needed to apologize for was the only way to stop it. You said something that he commented on, and it was fascinating. He commented that when they then expressed love or warmth or reach out and hug, he said he feels cold. He doesn't have that same interior experience. And then he feels shitty because he's not feeling what he feels is being given to him which then makes him angry. Mm. And I just thought that was interesting because you said, here, you're trying to read the tea leaves. You're trying to like almost, you know, become psychic and figure out what's going on. And, and we're thinking it's about the topic and they're thinking it's about their internal experience and it's failure to line up with what they think that you want. And then there's all this resentment and anger and upsetness that we're experiencing. And, and then you can see how then it becomes this weird experience because I'm talking about, you know, X and they're over on Z or some off into the, into the, you know, ether on something. And I, I have no idea. Yeah. It's, it's painful. I, I found that in, in my relationship, what my ex often did was he would become critical. He would act like somehow I was saying that I was better than him. And then he would make it all about the fact that I wasn't, he'd make sure that I knew that I wasn't better than him. He'd make sure he'd bring up something that I had done in the past that he saw as equal to whatever he thinks I'm accusing him of, which to me, it's like we're off into the weeds. That's not what we're talking about. It just got, and especially we were running a business. So it got really exhausting fast because how do you make practical decisions when we're back into who's better? That's not the point. I always felt like I was being thrown curveballs. Like I, I bring up like that I need a bank statement and then suddenly I'm, I'm having to explain where I was and what I had done two weeks ago or why I'd said X or why I did X. And I, all I needed was the bank statement. And here I am <laughs> like trying to justify, argue, defend or explain something that had happened weeks ago. That, mind you, I, I can't really remember what may or may not have happened, and I don't have the best short-term working memory and <laughs> trying to navigate that. And then I walk away after I've apologized. Then I walk away, and I'm like, I never got anything done. And I don't even realize that maybe until hours. Like, I just needed the bank statement, and I still don't have the bank statement. And for my situation in particular, it all came back to power and control and avoidance mm. as an abuse tactic. My narcissistic ex absolutely always used avoidance as an abuse tactic to make sure that there was no resolution. There was nothing was going to be effectively done because I was the one requesting it. Mm, because it came from you, then he was going to yep. sabotage it. Yep. Wow. Yeah. How frustrating. Or there was something further deceitful about it that he didn't mm. want to find. I remember we were refinancing our house and I needed a copy of a credit card statement. 
And it was actually a credit card that I'd forgotten that we had. He had gotten it, I guess, early on when we got married. It was this credit card to help rebuild his credit because he had declared bankruptcy prior to us getting married. And I guess he still had the account open and I didn't even know. And I text him at work for it. It's not a good time because he's at work. And then I ask him when he gets home and he just got home and he needs to rest. And I'm such a bitch for bringing it up. And then I bring it up later after he's been home for some hours. And that's not a good time because he's about to go to bed and he's had such a long, overwhelming day. And it went like this for days. And at that point, I'd gotten a little bit more knowledge about this as an abuse tactic and what I needed to do to stay focused on it. And still, it was just like constantly slamming my head against a wall and having to emotionally work through all of the deflection tactics and the curveballs and try to just stay focused on, I need this credit card statement. That's all that I need to get our house refinanced. And it just was this, it was climbing up a hill, yeah, climbing, up a, sounds- climbing up a rock face, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, impossible. Like a, a sheer face. You know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. I think we don't understand the fact that this is this is the other thing he said that I thought was fascinating. He said, you think that you're thinking about me and you're having your experience with me. I'm thinking about what you think of me. I'm managing what you think of me. And I think it's that disparity that causes all this. I'm not saying this is the only reason that arguments are never winnable with narcissists, but I do think that that's a powerful difference. If they're fretting about our perception of them, and they're trying to make sure it's as perfect or as good, even though they know that perception has been damaged because they've damaged it. We're just trying to address an issue, and we're trying to manage what we find to be the way that they show up that's highly emotionally difficult. So we think we're just trying to manage their sensitivity or their volatility or whatever it is that we experience from them, but we don't realize that they're actually doing all this image management. I just found that super fascinating. To me, like a lot of things clicked when I heard him say that because it made more sense about why everything went such a weird space. Because mine was really about living a second double life. And I know yours was because he was hiding that he was still using. But mine was really about he had his he wanted his life different and separate from me and wanted me not to be aware of that. So I now looking back and see that all of it was how how close is she to the truth? What is she really up to? How do I get space from her so I can act out? It was like a five-year-old trying to get away with getting into the cookie jar constantly, managing whether or not I was observing how close he was to the cookie jar or not, where I thought we were just trying to have life together. So it just felt like massively this miss constantly dismissed. And it was really upsetting to me because I'm a, I don't know if you've picked up a well this about me, but I don't like conflict. I work really hard to be easygoing not make a fuss. You know, if, if it's not something I'm going to feel like I'm dying on, then I'm going to give in around it because it's not that important to me. It's more important that life be peaceful. So here I'm trying to do that. And instead, I have all of this current, which I could never figure out why. I'm just trying to like live well. And I say yes a lot. And yeah, it was a mess. I think when I hear from people who live with narcissists, I, I kind of see there's two groups of people. There are those who are a lot like me that are easygoing, And they start walking on eggshells more and more carefully, trying to avoid the conflict. Or there's those who start to melt down a lot. They get very reactive. They feel very Mm -hmm. attacked. And then they don't like themselves because they feel like they're becoming this other person and they're becoming somebody they don't recognize. And both groups feel highly distressed because 
they feel out of control, which is what you just said. They want control. And this makes you feel really, really out of control. I was definitely more the latter group, all the meltdowns. I think I started in the beginning as sort of more easygoing. But, you know, I was in that relationship nearly 10 years. And I sort of reached a point where I realized that there was collaboration and cooperation were not going to happen. And I started basically just fighting back. And that just didn't feel good. Neither way felt good. It didn't feel good being a doormat, and it definitely didn't feel good being a rager. Neither one felt good. But I couldn't Mm. figure out a happy medium because there's no happy medium that exists when you're in a relationship with someone who is abusing you. (laughs) There's no no happy medium. (laughs) Yeah. If they're persistent in seeing you as being a problem, they're going to make you the problem. Mm. There's actually no way out of that. You will lose every single time because yeah. they've determined you're the problem. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was listening to you say, I, I started it out where you felt like you're kind of the doormat and then you felt like you become the rager. Do you think it was because you were trying to hold on to yourself? Like saying, I'm not letting you paint me bad. So I'm I'm pissed and trying to hold. I mean, what? why do you think that that happened? What, what was the point you were trying to drive home with that? I think for me, it really felt like if you're going to call me bad, just wait. <laughs> I will give you something. You think think I'm so bad? Just wait. I'll show you I can be way worse than you ever imagined. Mm -hmm. I really think that that started to be that way. That helped in some degree of self-preservation. It really helped me sort of start to piece together some kind of ego strength because anger can make one feel powerful. And I felt very helpless in that relationship. The thing about anger, though, is it burns out. So anytime my anger would burn out, I would go back to being, for one, ashamed and guilty of actions and feeling stuck and trapped. So for me, I think it's not more that I was easygoing and then went to meltdown. I I think I just ping pong between the two, you know, and I think in the beginning I was more easygoing than meltdown-y, but then later it just was definitely a ping pong between the two because mm. I was trying to find some degree of power in a relationship that was set on having me having no power and me being helpless and stuck and then just jump in between the two. When I was a doormat, that felt like peace. It wasn't actual peace. It was just that calm stage of the trauma bond. That's all that it was. But that's what I thought it was. I thought it was, I thought it was peace and it wasn't. When I started to become more aware of the abuse tactics that were present in that relationship, it became a lot easier for me to respond and deal with them. And so I think that awareness piece for our listeners is the most important part is that I, for the longest time, thought we were both my partner, my narcissistic partner, and I were playing checkers. We're playing the same game and we're we're following the same set of rules. And then I had to realize that this whole time he'd been playing a, a chess game on top of the checkers game. So he's playing checkers with me sometimes, but then other times in the background or the whole time in the background, he's playing he's playing chess. And when I realized I needed to switch games and I needed to see it like that is when I started to feel more capable of responding and dealing with what was happening. But the cognitive dissonance, the level of confusion and lack of clarity I had about what was truly going on. And then I was stuck ping-ponging between those two patterns, and neither pattern helped me in any way. As I'm listening to you, I, I realized that my driving need in the, the entire time 
was to feel connected. Mm. I desperately wanted a relationship that was meaningful, emotionally satisfying. I wanted a partnership. I was really looking for a partnership. I felt like instead I got, it was antagonism. It was competitiveness. It was secrecy and privacy. And I felt terribly alone. I mean, I'd been married before and I know marriage is not this perfect, idyllic connection that people always have. There's, there's loneliness in marriage. And I had dealt with this, but this was something different. This was a whole nother level of detachment that, that just felt unbearable. But as I'm thinking through, how could I, if I could speak to myself then or speak to those who are struggling with this now, how could I have dealt with it differently or survived it better? And I think that I would have had to finish grieving the fact that this relationship was not going to be an intimate partnership, companionship the way that I had hoped it. And that to let go of that because it would help me be less invested in how the arguments went or how the discussions went or that there weren't discussions that I probably would have done a lot more on my own, sought his opinion a lot less, kind of went my own way. But because I kept trying to make us work as a couple, that kept me caught in that that cycle, that very nasty cycle. And it's interesting. We're not talking about gray rock, which I know that there's a lot of strategies where people often engage in as a way to sort of deal with the minutia of a conversation. But I'm I'm feeling if I had addressed it at, at a larger level, at the relationship goal level, I probably would have been able to navigate the ins and outs of it. Like I said, I probably wouldn't have, I would have made many more decisions on my own. I would have looked to him less. I would have been less invested. Yeah, I would probably would have helped me get out faster because I'm pulling back and pulling out. But it was my investment, my de- high intense desire for that connectedness that that kept me stuck and kept me vulnerable to the no winning arguments. I really intensely wanted to feel like I belonged. I would have glimpses of that in the relationship. And that was always a dream of mine, especially growing up in a really problematic household where my parents like really didn't seem to like each other all that much. I just had always envisioned for myself this marriage where we would have a good friendship and we would genuinely connect and I would feel like I would belong, like that person was my home. I had glimpses of that in my first marriage, but sadly, those were just glimpses. It's I I would have like this brief moment where I would feel that or get that from the relationship. But then it would go away and I'd be craving and fighting and clawing to try to get it again. Or the worst part is whatever I revealed or was vulnerable about during that time of belonging, that time of brief feelings of safety and security was then later used against me to manipulate me. And that intense belonging, that is what really kept me stuck in the beginning is I would have these moments where I'm like, that's what I want. That's what I want my marriage to look like. That's what I want my kids to see when we raise them together. That's what I want. And then I I, I wouldn't have it anymore. And I'd be yeah. feeling like it was my fault that that was the case, that there was something I needed to do to make that come back. You mentioned that you may have left earlier. I never wanted to get divorced. I wanted to be one and done, one and done married. And I really had to work against that expectation or dream I had for myself that really had nothing to do with my ex at the time. That had nothing to do with him. I just never wanted to go through divorce. I just never did. I never wanted to leave. I never wanted to put my kids through that. I never wanted to deal with that. And I really had to work against that 
and make a decision that was really against a vision I had for my life. And I imagine you probably did something similar. And I think a lot of us have to work against that, that we have to sort of accept that this relationship may never give us what we want. And we need to let that go. And letting that go may mean walking away. And that's what I ended up having to do. And I did it with two young babies. And it sucked. I didn't have that goal anymore because I was going to be one and done with my first husband and then he passed mm-hmm. away. But it, it still irks me when I hear people celebrate like 50 years together. I would have been that 50 years together person. Mm-hmm. I, I just life took that from me. It wasn't I took that from me. Life took that from me. So I went into the second relationship. I was holding a lot of that a little looser because it wasn't as big of a goal. But you such a good point, though, that you make. I do believe it is our our idealization the fantasy that we have, or maybe even our, the intense desire that we're looking for in the relationship that sets us up and sabotages us. They're beautiful things. They're not wrong to want these things. But when you're living with somebody who's playing at the relationship as if it's the reality show of Survivor, which mm. here they are, they put you on the team, but ultimately there's only one winner. So mm-hmm. you're really, you're on a team, but you're not really on the team. You're really on a team of one on yourself. So it's how you're going to navigate being cooperatively but competitively playing the entire time. And that's what the narcissist is doing. They're feigning cooperation, but that's really a competition. And we get trapped and hurt when we think that this is only a collaboration, that we're fully working as a team because they never are on board as a team with us. So if I had let go of that with him faster, I think it would have saved me so much effort, so much pain, so much disillusionment and certainly would have probably helped me get out faster. But I had to battle through myself. And I I see that when I listen to people struggling with arguing, they really want someone, there's all sorts of goals, but the, the goals I hear people want is like, I want them to understand me, or I want them to know that I'm a good person, or I want them to know that I mean well, or I, mm-hmm. I what, you know, but we got to get yeah. ourselves out of the way. When we want those things, we're vulnerable because mm-hmm. An antagonistic person who already thinks that you're a bit arrogant because they think that you're like them is going to make sure that you don't get that. They're going to work against you getting those things on purpose. And I think that's a great way to wrap up this topic is that you can't win against a narcissist. (laughs) You just can't. There is there's absolutely no way to win an argument against a narcissist because their goal is only to win. Your goal is to be understood or listened to or valued or some kind of resolution, but that's not their goal. Right. They don't have right. the same goals in mind. No. And the faster we realize it, then the, the better off we are. Faster we can let go and move on. Yep. Self-help tip today is how to address the fact that you're not going to win an argument with a narcissist. And I think that's the first piece to remember going into these discussions is don't try to win. Don't try to be right. Don't try to get your point across. Don't try to come out on top. It's not going to happen. But what I found that was super helpful for me was to stop looking to the narcissists for their approval, for their acceptance, for their admiration, or even for their cooperation. To stop looking for this investment, this emotional investment that I'm going to get back from the other person. Instead, that I had to go into it with what I'm going to give myself. So if I went into the relationship and realized, but I wanted to maybe state my position clearly. Maybe I needed to hold firm on whatever my boundary was. But that also I needed to say to myself that I was good, that I knew that I was approaching with an integrity. I needed to be my own cheerleader. 
And with me walking into that discussion with me having my back, then I was less emotionally vulnerable for whatever I was going to get from that other person. So then if they didn't see me that way, I didn't really care because I knew I saw myself that way and I was okay with letting it fall the whatever way that it fell. And I was less invested in the reaction. So it really freed me up when I started to realize this. But I have to admit it's hard. It's hard work. I struggled a lot to do it well. I, I failed a lot, but I kept seeing my failures as practice. So the next time I would learn from it and try and maybe hopefully get a little closer to the mark. Yeah, I too struggled and failed a lot of this. It helped me getting help and support first to learn how to be more the person I would want to be and show up in those relationships differently. So I wasn't a doormat or a rager. I needed to find how I could be more more of a whole person that I would want to be, but also not attaching to expectations, really. I couldn't expect anything in particular from the person I was trying to engage with. When I went in without expectations, without the hope or dream that they would understand, follow, you know, not violate my boundaries, I had less attachment to that as well. And I think the other thing that we get vulnerable around it is we're insecure. Maybe we're not really confident on whatever our point is or whatever we're asking for. So we're hoping for their validation or at least their their confirmation that what we're looking for is reasonable. And again, if we do that work ourselves, even literally in ourselves, say to ourselves, you know what, you got this. It's not a bad thing to ask for this. This is a good thing. Then that can help us stop looking for that feedback from the other person who may then not be able to give it to us. Thank you for joining us today. Have a question or comment? Email us at hello at breakingfreewithcarrieandtara.com. If this episode has been helpful, consider becoming a supporter. And if you haven't yet, make sure to follow us at Breaking Free from Narc Abuse on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. We'll see you back here next time.